Hi, I'm Adrian Maiman. Welcome to I'm Also. This episode of I'm Also is taken from the recent storytelling event in Tauranga, organised by Dawn Pickin. It features local people telling their incredible life stories. Storytellers had just seven minutes each to engage the audience and share a time when their perspective or their life changed. This is part one of two. The event was held at Tauranga Club. So if you're familiar with the moth, the moth podcast or the storytelling hour, you will know what we're doing tonight. If not, that's okay. You're going to get to experience the stories told live. That is the idea here. For years, I have wanted to have something like the moth in Tauranga, and I kept thinking, I wish somebody would do that. I wish someone would have a storytelling event. And after a while, you start to realize that maybe you are someone. So, so, but I'm not just one someone. I am somebody with some really good friends and some very talented people. And I will introduce you to the committee at the end of this, because I really want to thank them for all their help and, of course, the storytellers, which you will hear in just a minute. Our theme is new beginnings. So think of all the new beginnings you've had in your life. Maybe you've chosen to start over. Maybe you've had a new beginning foisted upon you. Somehow we get through them. And you're going to be hearing eight stories of new beginnings tonight. These are eight local storytellers. They will speak for about seven minutes each. We are timing them. We have a countdown clock. We will not be clawing anybody off the stage. However, they know. Oh, they know how long they're going. We don't want anybody to get squirmy if things go too long, so we're going to keep it moving right along. Amanda Lowry is famous for all the wrong reasons. Since her accident in 2013, she has become a poster child for disability and community inclusion in the Bay. I say poster child because they're her words, not mine. Uh, She's a board member on several not-for-profits, working towards a PhD examining the experiences of highly impaired, high-performance athletes. She plays wheelchair rugby for the Bay of Plenty Steamrollers and swims competitively. Amanda lives with her partner and two young daughters in Tohanda. Her story is navigating life on two wheels. I was going to say it's a really, really good story. So, Bono, hello and welcome. On the 7th of March, 2013, I dived off my surfboard without my hands up above my head. I hit the bottom and I broke my neck. Six days after the birth of our littlest daughter, Diggy, my sister for three-year-old Lola, I heard the crunch. I tried to use my arms and legs, but they just wouldn't work. For some reason, I was strangely calm and I kind of decided to myself, if worse came to worse, I'd breathe in water. <clears throat> I'd been at the beach with a Spanish friend, and I promised my partner I'd just show him a good time for a couple of days, and then I'd be back by her side with our new baby. But instead, I was holding my breath, face underwater, yelling in my head, look up, Miguel, look up, Miguel. And then he turned me over. I could see the sky. I could breathe. And I wasn't dead. He gently took my upper body in his arms and pulled me up onto my surfboard and then dragged me up the beach. Everything was so clear. I could hear Lola crying as someone called me in an ambulance. In the ambulance, they were stabbing me with pins. I knew nothing would be the same again. 
And yet for some moment in the ED when they're cutting off my wetsuit, I'm like, don't cut my bikini! Because I really liked it and some reason thought I'd be wearing it the following day. <sighs> and so a new life began the moment I broke my neck. I suffered 110% anterior dislocation. So what that means is C6 vertebrae was sitting in front of C7 vertebrae, just kind of like a set of steps. Um, the medical diagnosis is I have tetraplegia. I'm paralysed from my necklace down. I've got no bladder or bowel control, no temperature regulation, so no sweat or no goosebumps. Kind of makes tolanga quite sucky. Uh, no, no tummy muscles, so I can't sit up or cough or sneeze. Uh, my legs don't work, but for me, hardest of all, my hands don't work. Um, my new body lift took a whole lot. Uh, my new body took a whole lot of getting used to. Um, for the first couple of weeks at the spinal unit, I couldn't hold my hand above my head without wanting to, without without it falling on my face. So I couldn't sit without wanting to pass out. You know, I uh, it was it was just epic. I went from being someone who would write down steps with Lola between my arms as a little girl and I would ride in three metre swell on my kite and pull off backflips and there was a there was a feeling of absolute fear when sitting on a bench looking down at my feet that drop looked as big as a Grand Canyon and I thought I was going to vomit and there's a whole lot of stuff you've got to get your head around when you lose your body um, how do you connect and care for what you can't feel like, if you could see my arms, they're covered in burns from leaning on the pan while I'm cooking. Um, and, it, and it takes, I have physical help for almost, almost every aspect of my physical existence. And so it would be really easy to hand over that care, and lots of people do. It takes between 40 minutes and an hour and a half to get me up in the morning. Um, I get helped to toilet, to shower, and to dress. And yet what you can't know from an able-bodied perspective is my ability to control the care that I receive. That's what that interdependence or support work is. That's what freedom looks like. That's what independence looks like. Um, but there's not just an internal change. There's an external change too. It's changed the way that people perceive me and they relate to me. And you know when you're out and about and you see, you're drawn to the most salient features you see handcrafted by God bodies, you see nose rings or tats or dreads. And before I was six foot tall and athletic and I got noticed for those reasons. And now it's this bloody thing. You know, I, like I'd never spoken to anyone in a wheelchair before my accident. Because uh, disability just wasn't in my world and now it is my world. So, but I try to still engage with the world. I don't back away from stairs. I, I, I greet eye contact and I smile. But that kind of openness comes with a cost. And I can't count the number of times where I've been out and about, like shopping with the kids, where someone's put their hand on my shoulder and leaned over and told me, you know what, well done. And I know what they mean, and they don't, I know they don't mean any harm, but I desperately want to go, why? Because I remember my fucking pen number. Oh, I get so frustrated. But kids are awesome, right? And I'll never back away from their questions. And I'm going to mean, what happened to you? And I'll go, dive on my surfboard, broke my neck, and I go, was there any blood? And then when I go, no, sometimes I lose half the audience. And then, and then other times, they'll go, 
I'll go, what happened to you? And I'll go, nothing, what happened to you? And then they'll just laugh. And I'll go, we're just the same, you know? And then I think that it's just it's my way of just breaking down barriers. Um, when I think about my little girl, Ziggy, um, our journeys are aligned. Uh, she was born and I got given a new body. And eight years on, and she's only just mastering her body and her language and her understanding of her world. And eight years on, and I'm only just I'm only just getting it too. But weirdly, I don't miss the big stuff, the fun body stuff. What does hurt my heart is when I think about how it would feel to be able to pick my babies up and squeeze them against me, or what it would feel like to be able to when I tuck them into bed at night, being able to lean over them and just breathe them in, you know? I think about how hard it is for my partner Gemma and how much I just desperately want to hold her or let her sleep in or even just take her a cup of tea in bed, you know? But in a funny way, again, I think the kids get a better deal because they come home from school and I am there. And we download about the day and we talk and we laugh and realistically, if I were able-bodied, we'd probably both be working, and we would have less time as a family. And if I'm honest, I'd probably be looking over their shoulder at the wind to see if I could squeeze in a quick kite. <sighs> but I still love pushing my body, so that hasn't changed. I play wheelchair rugby, I just need to say, best sport in the world, it's like violent chess. <laughs> and I didn't realise how important it would be to roll into a space where you buggers with legs are the odd ones out, you know? And there's this unspoken camaraderie that you get when you hang out with other wheelies, when nobody asks any questions, we all just get on with it and we play hard and we have fun. And it was while playing wheelchair rugby that I forgot I was in a chair because I was having so much fun. And that is a gift, you know? And my kids get to see other mums and dads and cheers and realise that their mama isn't the only one. Yeah? Um, and I still love the ocean, despite my rather fractious relationship with her. I swim like a paddle steamer. It's not pretty, it's not fast, it's like double arm backstroke. Uh, but I've swum to Rabbit Island. And in the last eight years, I've swum the bridge to bridge six times. And this last year, I beat four able-bodied swimmers. Oh, poor bastards, just saying. They were getting lifted out of the water. I was thinking to myself, oh, I think you need to lift your game a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, because of my love of swimming, I've been in a Paralympic development squad for the past three years. Um, uh, Parasport is all about classification, not age, which is a bit of a win, because otherwise I wouldn't get looking. Um, and it turns out, like, so Paralympics got a bit excited when I applied, and because it, it turns out as uh, there's never been an athlete with my level of impairment ever swim for New Zealand. <laughs> so as an S3, I'm top 10 in the world, quite like that. And then every time I swim in New Zealand, it's a New Zealand record. And <laughs> Because there's no other competitors, just saying, you know, you've got to take your wins when you can, anyway. Um, oh yeah, and the, but the big picture for me about the swimming is I'm making pathways for other highly impaired athletes. I want them to see me and know that it's possible, and I want them to come and push the old bitch off her perch. 
Um, when I think about my old life, it's like the death of a friend. I miss her, but I can't push her back. And when I look at the photos, I see someone else. Um, but I'm really grateful to her for this, providing the strong foundations on which to build the new me. And as you can imagine, there's been times of darkness and grief where I think to myself, it would have been easier if I'd died and everyone would have just grieved and moved on. But it only would have been easier for me because the girls still need their mama. And for some reason, my partner Gemma, she still loves me a bit, crazy bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so before my accident, I was so busy being human that I never realized that my real strength was never from my body. Despite having only 14% function, who I am remains unchanged. It's all about attitude. The worst moments in our life, they make us who we are. We just have to listen. We forge meaning and we choose moment by moment who and how we are in the world. So the 7th of March, rather than the day I nearly died, has been reframed as my new birthday, my alive day. Another great story coming up. Andrew Corrin is a doctor in general practice in Tauranga. He is also a clinical researcher with medical experience in Ireland, Kenya, Thailand, and the Philippines. When he's not working, Andrew enjoys writing, growing avocados on his orchard, and outdoor adventures. He's the author of the award-winning book, This Old Stick, stories about aging with grace. His story is entitled, My Best Day. Thank you, Dawn. Thank you. This story um, on the back of Amanda's is a bit more of a serious tale. <laughs> Somber even. But if, you, if the subject of the story were listening, I'm pretty sure that he would be chuckling along with it. So if you feel like having a chuckle along with Lance, not his real name, be my guest, particularly if it's an appropriate laughter, because that's the kind of thing Lance would do. My best day is swinging in a hammock beside my caravan, writing creatively and watching my family play in the surf. I wonder what your best day would look like if you could do it tomorrow. I hadn't really given this question much thought until a perfect alignment of frustration, inspiration, and navel-gazing moved me from thinking it was merely a self-indulgent curiosity to realizing it was to become an important anchor point in the swinging hammock of my life. I'm a medical doctor, and for much of my career, I've been guilty of thinking that I know best. Trust me, we doctors say. And often our knowledge and training and experience means we are well-placed to make important decisions about the healthcare of our patients. But not always. I came to this realization rather late in my career and Lance was instrumental. I've known Lance as a patient for many years, and he helped to guide me into a new beginning as a doctor, a fresh way of understanding what really matters to my patients and what they really want from me as their doctor. The change in my thinking and my practice gained some momentum when I was writing a submission to the proposed end-of-life choice legislation, and I came across a Tibetan Buddhist reflection. And the reflection says, since death alone is certain, and the time of death is uncertain, what should I do? Since death alone is certain, and the time of death is uncertain, 
What should I do? And rather than being a morbid reminder of our mortality, when used as a daily practice, this reflection can be life-giving and promoting a focus on what really matters each day, what our life priorities are. As I decided to dive deeper into some of these philosophical reflections, I came across Voltaire, the 18th century French Enlightenment philosopher, who said, doctors use medicines of which they know little, to cure diseases of which they know less, and human beings of whom they know nothing. And I revisited a saying I first heard as a young medical student from the father of modern medicine, Sir William Osler, who said, the good physician treats the disease, the great physician treats the person who has the disease. And as I sat with these reflections and reminders, I made a decision to move my focus from what I thought was best to what my patients told me was best for them. I did this with Lance just a few months after his wife had died from pancreatic cancer, as I did for all my patients with this project that I called My Best Day. I asked Lance to reflect on what his best day would look like and to describe it to me. I used the description of my best day to act as a surrogate for life priorities, for those things that really matter to my patients and how that could inform me as their medical healer in our journey towards health and well-being. The responses I had were many and varied, just like the patients in my practice. There was some pushback with negative comments or confronting comments such as, it's too late for me to think about this, or why haven't you asked me about this before? And there was encouragement. It's attached to my fridge door, reminding me to ask this important question every day. There were walks in solitude in the bush, watching grandchildren perform in shows, long lunches and laughter with extended family, growing and harvesting produce from the garden, and exploring new corners of the globe. Just a few months, uh, sorry, just a few weeks after Lance had given me his response, he was back in my consulting room, but concerningly a mere shadow of the towering solid man I had known. His profound and rapid weight loss, coupled with difficulty swallowing, took us on a swift journey to his diagnosis of metastatic throat cancer. He required urgent surgery, not because the tumour was operable, but because he needed a stent placed in his esophagus so he could still swallow. And over subsequent weeks, he required several more operations to replace the stent as this aggressive tumour continued to eat into his gullet. Finally, he had a visit to the oncologist, and this brought Lance back to my consulting room just eight weeks after that first alarming visit. He came in with a look of confused distress on his face, looking for some guidance from me as his doctor. He said to me, the oncologist has recommended that I take some urgent chemotherapy to buy me an extra few months of life. He said his well-meaning friends had all encouraged him to get on with his chemotherapy so he could complete his bucket list. And with moist eyes, this usually jocular giant said to me, Andrew, I don't know what to do. I have no family. I have no bucket list. And I don't want to disappoint anyone. In that moment of honest vulnerability, I had two choices. I could defer to the medical model of preserving life at all costs, of seeing death as a failure, the model I'd been trained in. Or I could try something new. As we sat together, I reached for the newest and perhaps most important tool in my medical kit. Once I said, let's have a look at what you told me was your best day. 
Lance had given me this piece of information just one month prior to his cancer diagnosis. I had entered it into his medical record and highlighted it in red, and I read it out to him. My best day, Lance had said to me, my best day is getting out of my caravan and having a cup of coffee and a good yarn with my mates. The best day is getting out of my caravan, having a cup of coffee and a good yarn with my mates. Chemotherapy was likely to give Lance a few extra months of life, but at a cost. Nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, fatigue, irritability, probably not being able to get out and drink coffee with mates. As we reflected on what decision Lance needed to make that day, we both agreed that whatever time he had left, it would be best spent doing what he loved. He was able to leave my room that day freed from obligation and confident that his decision to decline chemotherapy was the right one for him. We discussed this with his oncologist who was supportive and agreed, and Lance was able to have several good days, several best days over the subsequent weeks before he died. And I think he died well. Lance curated for me a new beginning as a medical healer of intellectual humility, of taking time to learn what's really important to my patients and how that can inform me as a partner in their journey towards health and well-being. What does your best day look like? Our next speaker, Amelia Hirota, works as a women's health acupuncturist and herbalist. Amelia and her husband, Emmy, also just opened Banana Blossom Cafe in Tauranga CBD. She settled in the Bay with her husband and two sons in 2014, and the family looks forward to becoming Kiwi citizens later this year. Her story is Confessions of a Breast Milk Trafficker. Please welcome Amelia Rilla. Thank you, Don. My husband had a mantra. It was, one is enough. One is enough. He used to say it all the time, especially when I talked about adopting another child. See, we'd adopted the most perfect boy as an infant in Malaysia. He was five years old now. I loved everything about raising children. I loved taking them to preschool and playing Thomas the Train. Love everything. And I wanted to do it again. But my husband said, one is enough. So I decided, like any good American, I guess I'll go into therapy. I'm going to cure this disease of wanting another child. It took me a year. It's a tough disease to cure. But I cured it, and I was well. I was satisfied with life. I was happy. And I decided I'm going to reward myself. We're going to go on a big trip. So we went on a trip to Malaysia. Asmi at this point is seven years old. And we're going to visit his birth mother. So we're having lunch, and her name is Siti. She leans over to me and she whispers, Amelia, I think I'm pregnant. I want you to adopt a baby. And I'm like, what? Well, Siti is whispering because she knows Emmy's mantra. She knows he's not going to be happy. So we go home from that trip. And I can't, I can't let go of it. I really, really want this. So we have a boat. We're at dinner. We have a boat. Who wants to go to Malaysia and adopt a baby? 
ASME and I vote yes. Emmy votes no. That's two to one. In the hero to household, majority rules. So we get ready for our trip. We're packing. My really good friend had a baby the year prior, and she had all of this breast milk frozen in her freezer. And she knew what I really wanted. I really wanted to breastfeed my adoptive baby this time. I had learned in the preceding years that there's a secret for adoptive mothers to breastfeed babies. It takes two things. One, you need a breast milk trainer. So you've got a little bag with a tiny little straw. You fill that bag with breast milk. So the baby is getting breast milk on demand, right? But you also need another ingredient, and that is called Dom Peridon. It is not in a bottle with a cork. It's a pill. It's an anti-nausea medication. And it induces lactation. So I figured if I got the breast milk and I got the Dom Peridon, I can do this. So I start Googling, how do you traffic, I mean, transport breast milk across borders without getting arrested? And basically, there's a lot of fiddly things, but basically you need to keep it frozen. So we're getting ready to fly from Boston to Kuala Lumpur. That's a 30-hour flight with a six-hour layover in Doha. What can go wrong? So we land in Kuala Lumpur with our partially thawed-out breast milk, and we have to overnight at the Pan Pacific Hotel in the airport. It's a great hotel, great service. So I go up to the counter, we're checking in, and I say, I just need some, to store some things in the freezer. Can you help me? And the, um, the clerk at the counter says, I'm sorry, ma'am, but it's Chinese New Year. Our freezers are full. And I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do? So I asked to see the general manager. His name is Ahmad. He has a huge heart. I tell him my story, and we go down with my suitcase of breast milk. We go down to the refrigerators and freezers, and opens the doors, and there's just you know, there's pig carcasses, and there's ducks hanging, and we walk back to the freezer section, and he starts clearing things from the top shelf. And then we put my dumb bag breast milk up there, right below the vents, and it freezes overnight. So the next morning, we fly to Cheriton, Malaysia, on the East Coast, where we have a house, and we're getting ready to pick up our baby. So at this point, he's five and a half weeks old, and we travel to Siti's house to pick him up. And when we arrive, he's laying on this pillow and he's just crying, he's really unhappy. He looks very small to us. And so, you know, we talk to Siti for a little while and then we decide, nah, we don't really feel good about this. We're gonna go to a doctor. So we go to a doctor in the nearby town and the doctor takes off all of Zaki's clothes and he's just, he's just skin and bones. He's so skinny. And the doctor says, how much did he weigh when he was born? I said, 2.9 kilograms. He says, he weighs 2.35 kilograms right now. So he has lost a half a kilogram of weight in five weeks. It's a lot of weight. But he's also covered with bites. And the doctor says, these are scabies. So he's very, very itchy, which is why he was so uncomfortable, why he was crying so much. So he gives us some medication for scabies. We go home. I'm just thinking, oh my God, oh my God, what do we do? And I call my sister, she's a pediatric ICU nurse in Rhode Island, and I say, Linda, this is what's happened, what do you think? And she said, Amelia, you cannot guarantee that he doesn't have irreversible brain damage. Five weeks is a long time to go without food. So I put down the phone, and he had heard the conversation. He's sitting with Zappy in his lab, and I just think, 
I literally forced him to do this. We have to live in Malaysia. We left our jobs. Asmi's left his school. I forced him to do this. And I thought, how are we going to stay for two years and complete this? And so I just look at him and I just go, you know what? If you don't want to do this, I'm okay. I will survive. We will be fine. And he just looks at me and he changes his mantra on the spot. And he says, I will never abandon Zappy. And that was it. We're side by side. We completed the process. We stayed for two years. I successfully breastfed Zappy until he was like five years old. Um, so I, I had my dream, my two dreams, to adopt again and to breastfeed my baby. And so he grew up to be healthy, he's a wonderful brain, and he is a fantastic basketball player. And he's sitting right over there. Persistence really does pay off. Storing all that breast milk in a hotel freezer. <laughs> Take some guts. All right. Our next speaker and our last one before the break is Steffi August. She is the challenge coach who lives in Mount Monganui. She came to New Zealand 25 years ago, adding another challenge to her life. She owns a coaching business, helping others to overcome challenges by turning them into powerful opportunities. Her story is, every challenge is another opportunity. Please welcome Steffi. Do you know, every challenge in life is an opportunity. It doesn't matter how big. But it is an opportunity for something bigger and bolder. November 1988, a dark, cold, windless night. Finally, I was released from prison. A prison I was in for 23 years and 7 months. It wasn't a, it wasn't a building. It was an entire country. Let's step back. Just imagine living in a country where prices don't go up for more than 30 years. Your wages increases every year by 4%. Imagine free daycare, free healthcare, free education, hardly any unemployment, and hardly any crime rate. Does it sound good? No such country exists. Not anymore. I was born there. I was made in East Germany long time ago. All those advantages had huge disadvantages. We had total travel restrictions even without COVID-19. We lived under constant fear of being randomly arrested while meeting up with friends on a regular basis. We were dictated, calculated, Manipulated. We didn't have a voice. We didn't live. We just existed like puppets. Did we want to live like this? Behind the wall, 155 kilometers long, 3.6 meter high, also known as the Iron Curtain. It was time to take on the challenge. It was time to take on challenges and see them as new opportunities. 
Like many others, we decided to make the move to West Germany. We had to apply to local authorities to get permission to leave. As soon as we did, we lost our jobs and we were put under secret surveillance by the Stasi, a government department that operates like a mafia. We had microphones planted in our car and in our flat. We didn't know in the beginning. People went to our apartment while we were out. Life was very challenging. Three times we tried to escape. Twice we are hungry, and once in the boot of an embassy car by Berlin. But since every street close to the Berlin embassy was monitored, it was far too risky. Friends of ours, they tried to escape during the night. He was already on the west side of, Ger of West Germany, waiting for his wife to follow. She was shot. So he went back and both went to prison. Six floors under the main street in Dresden. We had no idea the prison was there. The challenge was on. After more than two years of fighting, waiting, hoping, we got an invitation to come to the special office to receive the final instructions before we could leave East Germany. We did everything what we had to do. We didn't have a flat anymore, no car, no insurance, no bank accounts, nothing. We were nobody, we were nothing. We were enemies for the country. Why? Just because we had a different opinion. After three months, finally, we got the permission to leave. We lived out of packed luggage, ready to go at any day. So after, when we got the permission, we only had 24 hours to get out in a special provided train the following night. At the train station, we drank bubbles out of paper cups. We shared lots of hugs and kisses and wondered if we would ever see each other again. All mail was monitored and no, no phone calls were permitted. The train left at seven minutes past ten that night. We all cried and the train pulled away. After a long silent train ride, we saw lights and white houses. The difference between East and West Germany was so obvious. We fell under each other's arms and we started happily crying. We arrived in West Germany at 6 o'clock in the morning in the pouring rain. The first thing we spotted was a fruit and veggie store. Bananas, oranges, even strawberries. Everything we couldn't buy in East Germany. But we couldn't buy it either there. Why? We weren't allowed to take any money with us. We were greeted by people from the Red Cross and escorted to a refugee camp where we stayed for long, three long days. After character checks and numerous questions, we received 150 West German marks, an equivalent to 150 New Zealand dollars for our young 
family. After three days, we left the camp ready to start our new challenges, transform them into new opportunities. For, move forward, eight years later, it was time for a new challenge, and we decided to immigrate to New Zealand. We didn't have any visas, we didn't know where to go, and I couldn't speak the language as I learned Russian, a second language at school. The challenge was on again. The first sentence I learned from the Kiwis, Steffi, take it easy. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to take it easy and take every challenge you have, even right now, and see it as an opportunity. I want you to take every single challenge to transform it into new opportunities. Thank you. Thank you. Footage used in this podcast was filmed by Ruben Pagata and Julian Lane. Editing was carried out by myself. The event was organised by Dawn Pickin. To find out more about Om also, go to our Facebook page, we were on Instagram, we have a new website up soon. Maybe it's up now. <laughs>